This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily, World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNXRadio.com studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. We at uh, this recording, still waiting for the results of the presidential election, could be waiting for a while. All the drama surrounding the votes counting, distancing us from the ongoing pandemic. The country finally has surpassed 100,000 positive cases in a single day. How will we get this thing under control if we are as divided as the election indicates. Businesses now rethinking if they really need office space, you know, because so many people aren't going in, will try to predict the future of commercial real estate. But we're in the office. How come? <laughs> we're very essential, although <laughs> our bosses have debated that one. So, <laughs> Well, let's get back to the um, new 100,000 daily cases and controlling the virus, if uh, we can even do that at this point. Dr. William Schaffner is a professor of preventative medicine and infectious diseases over at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine. He formerly worked as an epidemic intelligence officer at the CDC. Doctor, there were thoughts that this election was a, you know, a kind of referendum on President Trump's pandemic response, but it, it doesn't seem to have been. Do people have COVID fatigue? Yeah, it's going to be very difficult because the world seems to be divided into two groups, the careless group and the careful group. And there's a lot of COVID fatigue out there, but the virus is not fatigued. 100,000 new cases in one day. That's stunning and profoundly sad from my point of view. Well, and here's the other problem, as I'm sure you realize, which is when and if there's a vaccine or vaccines, uh, I'm wondering how many of those, what, uh, how many people have now voted for the president? Uh, about Just about 70 million people. Presumably many of them do not uh, believe that the coronavirus is as a severe a threat as some others do. Um, so how do you get enough people then vaccinated to make a difference? Yeah, also with difficulty. Uh, and I think we're going to have to really try to depoliticize the vaccine. There has been a political veneer over it. Make it professional again. Communicate first to medical professionals where there is also a lot of skepticism and concern. And then if the medical professionals can be won over, they can provide information and reassurance to the public. We're going to have to work very hard to reach out to the minority communities because they are disproportionately affected by this virus and have also expressed in surveys a, a substantial reluctance to get vaccinated. So it's a big task ahead of us. It's not easy. What does that, what does that kind of look like? Because I think maybe it was even with you before we kind of had a discussion about this, which is you can go out and survey people and they say, you know, I am wary of vaccines, but I understand that they are important for, for you know, efficacy and, and getting diseases out of the way. So it's it's almost like a, you know, it's it's fine for you to take it, but I'm going to be the second or third in line. I'm going to wait. So what do we, we have to watch Fauci take one. We have to see whoever's the president, the vice president, watch them take a shot on TV. I think some of that will be very important, the modeling, and then also feeding back information as we go, demonstrating that the vaccine is safe and being able to demonstrate that it's actually preventing disease. I think some of those people will come back and be second, third, and fourth in line. They won't stay off 
the line completely. And so we'd want to bring them in over time, which just goes to show that this vaccination program, I assume we're going to have one, uh, will extend over months. And one of the things that will make people a bit glum is that even if you're vaccinated, you're going to have to keep wearing your mask because these vaccines are going to be good, but they won't be perfect. Well, and, and here's the other uh, issue, which is since it is going to take many months, if we continue at this infection rate, which actually has been accelerating, as you know. So at the rate we're now going as of yesterday, what, we're almost getting to the point of a million new cases a week if we're going to get 100-plus thousand per day. Do you see anything that would mitigate that in any in any critical way over the next several months? Because if not, by the time these vaccines are available and kick in, you're going to have millions and millions of Americans infected and who knows how many seriously ill and dead. Well, our current national strategy, if you can call it that, is individual protection. You make up your own mind if you're going to wear the mask, do social distancing, and avoid groups, whereas other people who don't choose to do that can go out and run the risk of infection. So we don't really have a population-based, a, a true public health strategy. If we had one and we could all be brought, or most of us, brought into wearing masks, social distancing, and the like, then I would think within a month we would see these curves begin to flatten. This has worked in other countries. It worked when we had the shutdown here. It's just that we can't be fatigued. This is a marathon we're running, not a sprint. So if we can't get to the table with the 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 goo and the protein bars and the water and the Gatorade in our marathon, and we're still tired. Um, what does winter look like? Because now we're, we're getting, you know, this smart through the race, and uh, we're going to have a tough time. So you got to, what, mentally prepare yourself for the next couple of months? Uh, we're doing that and trying to urge everyone to become more careful and, incidentally, uh, also get vaccinated against influenza because that virus we know comes in every winter and causes a big outbreak in and of itself. So we could have what a friend of mine has called a twindemic. We could have both COVID and flu active in our population simultaneously. And won't that cause a problem? Wow. I, I, I'm curious, and you don't have to mention any names unless you want to. Do you have any uh, friends or maybe family members who are not into the social distancing and wearing masks? And if so, what kind of conversations do you have with them? Uh, <laughs> endless. <laughs> we have endless conversations. Yes, uh, there there are people in my extended family who are not as attentive as some of us are. And a lot has to do with their perception of the nature of the problem and the fact that they have received a lot of information more from, shall I say, politicians than from public health authorities. And there's a lot of that out in the country. It's not just in my family. <laughs> <laughs> so so you still, you're holding out hope for them that they'll come around? I'm, I'm an optimistic fellow. I never give up hope and I never stop trying. All right, Dr. William Shafter there. Doctor, thanks for coming back on the show. Uh, preventative medicine, infectious diseases, Vanderbilt University School of Medicine. Used to be an epidemic intelligence officer at the CDC.
Coming up after this short break, the pandemic could lead to empty office buildings permanently. More people are working from home, leaving offices empty. That has many businesses rethinking if they really need to spend all that money on rent or buying up office space. Anybody interested in a skyscraper? (laughs) Matt Leon at KYW talks to David Wilk, director of real estate center at Temple University's Fox School of Business, about the repercussions of the pandemic on commercial real estate. I think on one level, as far as rent collections, it hasn't been as bad as people thought it could be in terms of collection of rents, maybe in the mid 80s to mid 90s on, you know, not on a overall basis, but in um, different regions. Um, the, the occupancy levels, as you can imagine, are probably down in the 20, 10 to 20 percent because so many people are still working from home for now. Uh, and then it just uh, has also led to a real reimagination or rethinking of what <clears throat> companies are going to be doing in the future once things return to more normal conditions or uh, a new conditions after the pandemic. Yeah, that uh, that's kind of the interesting point here. From what you're seeing, reading, talking to people, are companies starting to think about life where a portion, if not a good portion of their workforce works from home, if not exclusively, to a a much higher degree than before? And how does that change how they look at their real estate needs? It uh, it has been happening in most companies because, as as you may know, excuse me, real estate is the second largest operating expense for most companies behind human capital. So <clears throat> when you have an expense that figures that prominently into your financial statements, you have to really look at a time like this and say, what can we do to reduce that or to optimize that spend? Uh, so that's kind of number one. There's, a, there's almost a, you would be asleep at the wheel if you did not start to look at that. On overall trends, uh, we're seeing a lot of companies really create broader policy statements about what they think the future of work is, including the tech companies like Amazon has said, we're going to allow people to work from home for the foreseeable future. Facebook and uh, Google and other large tech firms have said, we're at least going to be more work from home oriented until at least the middle of next year. And then we'll update things once we get to that point. Uh, Here in Philadelphia, Comcast has pretty much told their people that you're probably not coming, most of you are not coming back to the office before the beginning of next year, and many won't be coming back until later in the year. Law firms uh, and accounting firms and professional service firms have discovered that their employees can be just as productive working from home and maybe happier working from home. Uh, rather than coming in to sit in the office and do the same work. So I think there's a tsunami of change happening in terms of what the office market and occupancy levels look like in the future. To that point, I mean, you mentioned those occupancy levels. I mean, probably not going to stay that low. But, you know, we're we're talking a 50-story building in Center City or Center City in any major American city. I mean, what does this look like as this starts to unwind? Two, two things. One, 
any leases in those high-rise buildings that are going to renew in the next couple of years are going to be the, going to be looked at in terms of shrinking the footprint. So anyone that's got 200,000 square feet, for example, and has a renewal within the next couple of years, they're going to be going back to the landlord and saying, we're going to shed at least half to three quarters of our space. And so that, that process, it actually can begin almost two years before the end of the lease term because of all of the eventualities that go into that. So there will be a lot of shrinkage in terms of existing tenants in buildings who still want that building presence but do not want that same amount of space or expense. And then the second part of it is in the meantime, Matt, they're going to, there's a huge upsurge in every major market on sublease availability space. And that's because all of the large spaces in those buildings that you mentioned are now unused and the tenants are saying, gosh, wouldn't it be great if someone could come in and take that space off my hands now and, um, and have, be able to shed that expense. So that's the one really strong trend that we're seeing is sublease space has gone up dramatically in every major market. And I don't see that changing. I think there was a sense that maybe we could create clarity on the end of this kind of stay at home work scenario. And many companies and professional groups have kind of held off on doing that type of move. But now I think that will uh, increase in intensity. So I, I, if we're going to see, you know, all of this, the, you know, this occupancy shrinkage, which I think is inevitable. What, and you talk about subleasing, but what do you think fills that void? What could we start to see take in some of this space? Um, I just look at, for instance, I know there's a shopping mall near me that 20 years ago was all stores. And now it's doctor's offices, there's like a township office, courthouse, stuff like that. Could we start to see some reimagining of space in, in that type of direction where we start to see things together that we are not used to seeing together? Absolutely. And reimagination is the perfect word. Uh, there's no question that the retail market and has been hit really hard. And if you're, if you're a a betting person, which I'm not, you have to um, know that it's not going to just go back to the way it was ever again with malls and with um, retail centers that have lost their mojo, so to speak, or have lost an anchor. And so, and I, but I think what's really fun about that is there's a lot of opportunity for innovation and creativity and community impact by reimagining those centers where you have an educational component, you have a multifamily residential component, you create some techie uses, maybe some maker space, perhaps, uh, you know, a robotics or gaming center, things that tie into the preferences and interests of your market audience. And so, and that's the fun thing about real estate, Matt, is if you think about it, every 30 to 50 years, there's a dramatic transition in our lifestyle habits, in our work habits, in our commercial habits, in our living habits. And we're basically, we were basically right in the middle of a huge urban um, migration 
where everybody was loving the idea of going into urban areas and not having to need a car and being able to walk out your front door and, and go walk everywhere that you want to go or have public transit. And now with COVID, that has completely screeched that sentiment and that market movement to a halt. And now the suburbs are have become the beneficiaries of this, you know, what you would call black swan event, which is COVID. So and so what we're finding is that those malls that were kind of saying, ooh, uh, like for example, near me, Granite Run Mall had JCPenney, it had Sears, it had Boscov's, and uh, a group, a development group came in and completely transformed that site. And now it's reawakened again as this really cool destination. So I think that's just beginning to happen. And I think that that's a good trend because we need to constantly meet the market. And by reimagining properties into higher and better uses is a great way to do that. What's your level of concern? How concerned are you? We talk about low occupancy and we talk about places wanting to shed space and stuff like that. Um, I would think eventually that starts to pile up that there, you know, the supply, there's more supply than demand and you're going to have people that can't make the rent. No. Are you worried that we could see things cascade in like the commercial real estate market uh, and cause some real problems? Yes, I'm worried about that. And I'm an optimist. What what I what I see happening is some really interesting kind of counterbalancing trends. And here's what because I do work on a national level. Here's what I'm seeing. There are brand new high rise office buildings under construction right now in most major cities that are new, modern, glossy, you know, beautiful um, what we call tier 1A or AAA buildings. And they're going to be completed in the next year or two. And they will be, they're, they're having very good success because they were leasing up in a strong market pre-COVID. They're going to have very good success in terms of coming out and capturing demand so if there was not a lot of new supply coming on in the market and a lot of new buildings on the, um, on the block to be, to be built that kind of stopped, then you would say, okay, well, the, the impact to the occupancy rates won't be as severe. But what, had, what the, the trend that we're seeing is that there's a, there seems to consistently be a flight to quality. So when you're a law firm and you're a corporation or you're an investment banking firm or you're someone that really has a high visibility brand, you're going to go to that triple A building as opposed to the A minus building and even try to get naming rights on it. So what will happen is the law firms and the engineering firms and the uh, accounting firms, the EYs and the KPMGs and the Deloitte's and PWCs, they'll go into those real high-end buildings as well and leaving the lesser desirable buildings in a position where two things could happen that I worry about. Number one, they wind up going into default or special servicing and get wind up on the you know, either a note purchase or an auction situation. Um, and then the other thing that um, 
would be the case is that some of them may never come back again as office buildings. They may need to be converted to apartments or other type of use. So there could be a lot of uh, uncertainty in those B and C buildings that were doing really well before COVID, but now aren't sure whether they're going to be able to get back to that level or not. Oh, no. The coronavirus death toll will now include minks. Denmark's prime minister says the government wants to cull all minks at farms in the country to minimize the risk of them retransmitting the coronavirus to humans. Seems a report that maps the coronavirus in Denmark has shown a mutation in the virus found in 12 people in the northern part of the country who got infected by minks. The health minister says half the cases in northern Denmark are related to mink. The government estimates calling the country's 15 million minks could cost up to $785 million. Denmark is one of the world's main mink fur exporters, producing an estimated 17 million furs per year. Not where I thought any of this would be going today. Now, moral to the story, wear nylon. (laughs) Thanks for listening to us on the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. 